St. Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 15, verses 1 to 11. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James then to all the apostles, and last of all he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles, and do not even deserve to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed. This is God's word. Father, we've prayed your word is a firm foundation. Father, we pray that as we look at what is of first importance in your word now, the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, you might help us each to build a firm, solid foundation on the cross that we might know with confidence what the cross means, that we might be able to say not just that I believe Jesus died, but I believe he died for me and have the joy and the security and the peace that comes with that. Amen. Look, tonight we are going to look at the cross of Jesus Christ. Uh, for those of you who wouldn't call yourselves Christians, you chose a very good night to come to church. Because the cross is at the centre of everything that Christians believe. It is the, the defining symbol and the truth of our faith. For those of you who would already call yourself Christians, well, you might well have stayed at home, to be honest. Uh, no, no, no. <laughs> no, before you get out your smartphones. Actually, it is very important. It's very good for us to be here, too. Because the cross isn't just something you start out with. The cross is a dynamic truth that should be shaping our lives five years after we become Christians, 15 years after we become Christians, 50 years after we become Christians. In 1 Corinthians 2.2, 2, at the start of this letter we've been looking at, Paul said that for the 18 or so months that he was living in Corinth, that the cross was the sole subject of his personal study and his public ministry. It is that rich and that full that the great apostle, genius as he was, could say, I spent all my time on the cross. I resolved to know nothing but Christ and him crucified. And he did not run out of things to study or run out of things to teach. The Christians who live daily at the foot of the cross, here's a truth to know. The Christians who live daily at the foot of the cross are the Christians who are full of joy and peace and hope and love. You'll find that out soon enough in life if you're a Christian. It's the Christians who live at the foot of the cross daily who are full of joy and peace and hope and love. And so if you want to be like that, then come to the cross regularly. And we're going to do that tonight. 
Now, the church at Corinth, as we've seen, is in something of a mess. They're divided, they're distracted, and Paul, at the end, is calling them back to what is of first importance. He started his letter with uh, a call to to live by the cross. Let the, the cross of Jesus Christ be the focus of your faith, and let it define you and shape the way that you live, rather than the worldly attitudes of Corinth. And in the final chapter, in chapter 15, well, the, the, the final substantive chapter, he's going to tell them, let the resurrection of Jesus Christ be the thing that you look to and that shapes how you live as well. The cross and the resurrection should shape them. Let's see how he does it. And tonight we're going to focus really on the, on the cross. So next week, Easter Sunday, seems an appropriate enough time, we'll look at the resurrection. Tonight, the cross. Chapter 15. And you'll see you've got an outline as well in your sheets. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you've taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you've believed in vain. For what I preached, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Do you see from these verses, it is a matter of life and death. By this gospel, verse 2, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. He says, this is what you've taken your stand on. In other words, this is what you've staked your life on. See, the picture the Bible has is not that uh, all Christians live on the fence, all people in the world live on the fence, and some people decide to become Christians, and some people decide to believe other things, but we're all basically in this big, neutral, spiritual Switzerland fence place. It's not like that. We are halfway up a cliff face, and there are a whole load of ropes dangling down, and there's a thousand-foot drop. And you decide which rope to clip onto. The rope called Jesus or Buddhism or I don't careism or whatever it is. Or atheism, whatever the rope is. But be in no doubt we're a thousand feet up. And he's saying you staked your life on it. That's what it means to become a Christian. It is just to say that you've put your trust in Jesus. Everybody lives their life one way. You've chosen Jesus. And you've staked your life on it. And if you stay clipped onto Jesus... If you stay tied to him, then you'll be saved, Paul says. Now note also uh, that it's not just a vague thing. So he he uses this word gospel, gospel, verse 1, gospel, that he preached. Verse 2, gospel, by this gospel you're saved. Uh, And then he uses the, he calls it the word I preached to you at the end of verse 2. So what does it mean? Well, he gives it a definite content then in verse 3 to 4. So he talks about... um, them receiving what he has preached and he then says in verse 3 what I received I preached I passed on to you as of first importance what is this gospel that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures that he was buried that he was raised on the third day according to scriptures that is the content of the gospel that is what is of first importance in Christianity and that is what we need to believe if we are to be saved this is Paul's message and notice that the death of Jesus, he says, look, gospel, which is a word you sort of sometimes hear used nebulously by Christians. He says, no, it's got a definite content. It's about the, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. But the death of Jesus isn't just some sort of vague thing where I like to believe this about Jesus and, and I've always thought that. It's, no, it's according to scriptures. There's a definite content to it. 
Next week, we'll see what it means when it says that he rose again according to scriptures from the rest of chapter 15. But just now, what does it mean to say Christ died for our sins according to scriptures? What does that actually mean? See, at the time Paul's writing, there is no New Testament. It's early, early 50s AD. There's almost none of the New Testament has been written. Only a couple of letters. That's it. So he's talking about the Old Testament, which finished... The last word was written 400 years before Jesus was even born. So how can he say Jesus died according to scriptures? He wasn't even around at that point. Well, he can say that, as many of you will know, because the whole Old Testament points to Jesus. So Christianity is not some weird offshoot of Judaism. It is the fulfillment of the promises of the Old Testament. It is the fulfillment of Judaism. So in the second letter that Paul writes to the Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians 1.20, he says, As many as there are promises in the scriptures, they are yes and are men in Jesus Christ. Everything in the Old Testament points to him. Now we're going to really focus on three texts and look at how they point to the death of Jesus and teach us about it. But here's the thing. It's according not to scripture or one or two scripture, but to scriptures, the whole thing is full of stuff about Jesus. So Jesus' death on the cross, if you like, it runs through the Old Testament like the writing on Brighton Rock. You can chop off the end and it's still there. Chop in the middle. It's there all the way through. To ask which bit of the Old Testament sheds light on the life of Jesus, on the death of Jesus, is like saying which bit of the sky has stars in it. <laughs> they're everywhere. You've just got to go to the right place to be able to see them, but they're everywhere. Okay, we're going to go back and uh, just to show you this, we'll start at the very beginning. We're going to whip through a couple of bits of Genesis before we get to the three texts we're actually going to look at. Um, right at the very start of the Bible, Genesis chapter 3, serpent crushed. So now the serpent in the, in the Bible represents Satan, uh, the devil. And in Genesis 3, he brings evil and death and decreation into God's good world as he tempts Adam and Eve to rebel against God probably familiar to many of us. But immediately after that catastrophic first sin, even as God is pronouncing judgment and telling them what the awful consequences of their action have been, even then, there is a shadow of the cross. Genesis 3.15, as God speaks to Eve, he says, I will put enmity between you and the, uh, as he speaks to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. A descendant of Eve will crush the serpent, but will be brutally wounded as he does so. Colossians 2.15 makes it very clear that Jesus is that descendant. He is the serpent crusher that scripture has longed for. We read in Colossians 2.15 that having disarmed the powers and authorities, the evil powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by his cross. As he was bruised, as he was stabbed, as he was pierced, he was crushing Satan. So in the promise of a serpent crusher, right at the start of the Bible, already we see a shadow of the cross. Uh, move on just a couple of verses later, uh, Genesis 3.21. So to start with in Genesis, Adam and Eve are naked and that's a sign of their innocence. But once sin has entered the world, their nakedness is no longer their innocence. It becomes a source of their shame. But God doesn't just throw them out of the Garden of Eden. He does something for them before he throws them out. 
So there's lots we could say here. Genesis 2.17, God says, the day you sin, you will die. Nobody actually dies on that day, interestingly. They die spiritually. Well, actually someone or something does die at this point. Genesis 3.21, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. There's a sacrifice that dies at this point in Genesis. So an animal is killed and in his death, their shame their nakedness is covered. A symbol, a sign. You see, our, our shame is not so much our naked physical bodies. There's nothing wrong with that. It is the shame, the Bible says, of our perverted, filthy ways. And the death of Jesus Christ, it wipes away our shame. And we are clothed in his pure righteousness rather than our filthy rags. In the covering of their shame, through the sacrifice of an animal, we see how the death of Jesus will cover our shame for our shameful deeds. And on and on it runs through Genesis. You could turn to Genesis 6 and uh, Noah's Ark, which points to Jesus' death. It tells us that the, the only source of salvation when God's judgment falls is the way that he provides. For us, not a wooden ark that we climb into, but a wooden cross that we cling onto. On to Genesis 15, when God makes a covenant, a a binding agreement with Abraham. And how does he do it? Uh, It's not in a legal office with a a fancy ink pen and, and bottles of champagne lined up. In the Old Testament, in the ancient Near East, you didn't sign a covenant. You cut one. Because what would happen is it would take place outside because you get a whole load of animals and you hack them all in half and then you lay out each half and form this sort of corridor of gore and then each person who signed the agreement walks through between the halves of the, the bloody animals to say, if I break this agreement, this should happen to me. Only when it comes to it, when God's, God uh, ratifies his agreement with Abraham, Abraham is not made to walk through. God walks through on his own to say... I, God, will take the death that is deserved by your spiritual unfaithfulness, your wickedness and your failure to treat me as God. And that is what Jesus suffers on the cross as he is torn apart for us, for our unfaithfulness. Genesis 22, uh, a few chapters later, uh, God um, tests Abraham's commitment to him by saying, kill your son Isaac as a sacrifice to me. And so he takes him up Mount Moriah. But obviously, uh, as, we, as you probably know, God stops Abraham from killing his child. God doesn't approve of the killing of children. It was just the sort of thing that people believed back then. So Abraham didn't realize. But God was never going to make him do it. But then centuries later, God shows his commitment to you and to me. On Mount Moriah, now renamed Jerusalem. As his son is sacrificed and there's no one to stay the knife this time. As he dies to save us. And we see God's commitment to us. So throughout the Old Testament. You just start reading at Genesis. And there's shadows of the cross everywhere. It's just all over the place. But there are probably three Old Testament texts. Which are more important than any other. If you can say such a thing. But three that are perhaps are most crucial for our understanding of the cross. They're Exodus 12, Leviticus 16 and Isaiah 53. Now, like a tourist going through Paris, there's a lot to see. But if you've seen the Louvre, you've seen the Eiffel Tower, and you've seen Notre Dame Cathedral, you know, there's a lot more to see. But they're the, you know, that's, that's the lion's share of it. That's the big deal. You've, you, you know, you've done Paris. Uh, you know what I mean? They're, they're, the, they're the kind of the big three. These are, there's loads the Bible has to say 
about the death of Jesus. But these three passages in the Old Testament, they are the Louvre, the Notre Dame and the Eiffel Tower that point to the death of Jesus. We're really pressing this, aren't we? Um, now, each will, uh, each will emphasize a different aspect of the death of Jesus. Um, but the, there's lots overlapping, but each will a- emphasize a different aspect. We'll start with Exodus 12, page 68. And this is where we see that the death of Jesus brings redemption to life. The death of Jesus brings redemption to life. We see here that the death of Jesus is the means by which God sets you and me free from our slavery to sin and gives us eternal life. God sets us free from our slavery to sin and death and gives us eternal life. So the Israelites have been slaves for 400 years at this point under Pharaoh who is working them to death. And God has sent nine devastating plagues on the Egyptians. Nine devastating plagues have come down on them. But he then says there's going to be a tenth plague. And the tenth plague is going to be different. In the first nine plagues, God has made a distinction between the Israelites, his people, and the Egyptians. But this time he says you've got to do something to stop you suffering in this plague. Uh, Back in Genesis 2.17, God had declared that the punishment for sin is death. And so when we hear that the, the final plague will be a plague of death as God judges Egypt, well, perhaps it's not surprising then to find that the Israelites will also be in trouble because the Egyptians aren't the only sinners in Egypt. The Israelites too are sinful. And so if God is going to come and do what he said in Genesis 2 and bring the punishment for sin, which is death, then the Israelites are in every bit as much trouble as Pharaoh is. So God instructs the Israelites that each family is to, is to take a lamb and to kill it and then to take a, a hyssop plant and daub the blood from the lamb on the doorposts of the house. And he says, if they do that, they will be safe. Listen to Exodus 12, verses 12 to 13. Let's just dive in there. On the same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals. And I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. It's pretty obvious the lamb dies in the place of the sinner. The lamb dies in the place of the sinner. A substitute. And God's judgment of death will finally set his people free. Pharaoh will be broken and the people will walk out to paradise, to life with God in his paradise land but only if they trust in the blood of his lamb. And Jesus taught that you and I are slaves, uh, not to Pharaoh. I don't think anybody here is a slave to Pharaoh, but we are slaves to our sinful desires. He says in in, uh, John 8, 34, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. In other words, there are things that we do, there are things we desire, there are things that we think, and there are things that we say that we cannot stop ourselves from doing even if we want to. But Jesus' death on the cross redeems us, sets us free. Uh, So Colossians 3, 
uh, sorry, Colossians 1 in the New Testament. Uh, Colossians 1, we read this, verse 13 and 14. For he, that is God, has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. We have been liberated by the death of Jesus on the cross and brought into the kingdom of freedom and life of the Father God. You and I have been set free by the true Passover lamb if we trust in Jesus. And this matters. This really matters because uh, I don't know what your particular besetting sin is. I'm not going to tell you what my biggest struggles are. Uh, They may well be obvious to you, but we're all different. I guess for some of us, there is just red mist anger and we, are, we totally lose control. For others of us, there is that pressure cooker that just builds and builds and builds of lust that just boils up within us. For still others of us, there's that bitterly addictive cycle of self-pity as we nurture grievances and chew them over and play them over in our minds. Or that swell of pride that... It just feels so good. And when I'm so insecure in so many other ways, it's just, I don't want to let go of it. Our sinful desires can be overwhelmingly powerful. And the Bible tells us, if you trust in Jesus, you're set free. The problem is that I don't feel very free, and so the words can just bounce off my heart. I go in one ear and out the other. You're set free, yeah, whatever. You should see what my heart is like. Exodus 12 helps us here because it helps us to see how total the redemption of Jesus is. In other words, Jesus' death on the cross is a fulfillment of the Exodus and our forgiveness, therefore, is modelled in the Exodus. You and I are as free from sin as the Israelites were free from Pharaoh. Or to put it another way, in terms of ruling over you, sin is on the other side of the Red Sea. So, sinful desires can tempt us. They can cause all sorts of mess and pain when we give in to them for us and for other people. But they can't rule over you. They don't determine your destiny. And they cannot drag you down to death anymore. We have eternal life if we trust in Jesus. We are transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of the sun. And we are journeying to eternal life just as the Israelites were heading to Canaan. Exodus 12, we are redeemed, we are set free. Secondly, Leviticus 16, uh, there is cleansing that brings access. So we, we jump forward in the story and the redeemed slaves gather at Mount Sinai on the, in the Egyptian peninsula and God gives them the law and the rules and the regulations for how they should live if they're to be his people. And if you've read anything in the Old Testament, you know it's basically just loads and loads of sacrifices when you flick through it, is what it feels like. There's burnt offerings, grain offerings, wave offerings, thanksgiving offerings, fellowship offerings, drink offerings. Everything is just being burnt up, sliced open and poured out. It's just, it just feels like that. But at the heart of the whole sacrificial system is Leviticus 16, the Day of Atonement. Yom Kippur. And it comes in the answer to a very serious problem. If you turn to page 119 page 119 and uh, Leviticus chapter 16. So Aaron's two sons, Nadab and Abihu, have uh, worked out, so God's redeemed us, so presumably we can be pretty casual with God. And they wander in and they decide to make up their own way of sacrificing and approaching God and <laughs> fire comes out of the presence of God and they're consumed. 
Leviticus 16, verse 1, the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron who had died when they approached the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, tell your brother Aaron he is not to come whenever he chooses into the most holy place behind the curtain in front of the atonement cover on the ark or else he will die. You see, the Israelites are God's people but they're a sinful people. And in Leviticus, uh, they It's not the only way that sin is spoken about, but the dominant image for sin is uncleanness. Uncleanness. In other words, our sin is is filth. That means that we can never come before the presence of a holy God any more than if you're, you're caked in excrement and mud, you'd be welcome in Buckingham Palace to see the Queen. And it means that the redeemed people of God cannot be the intimate people of God. The Israelites can no more come before God than someone soaked in petrol can come near fire. It's just not safe. It's not safe for those of us who are stained with sin to be in the presence of the Holy God. And so God institutes this Day of Atonement. And on the Day of Atonement, there's basically sacrifices for everything. Uh, So for the Ark of the Covenant, for the altar, for the tabernacle, that's the temple at the time, for the priests and the people, everyone everyone and anything possible is sprinkled with blood and and sacrificed for on the Day of Atonement. And throughout, there's a stress on two things, cleansing and access. Cleansing and access. And basically, cleansing leads to access. And uh, there are two things that go on lots. There's lots of washing of clothes and there's lots of killing of animals. Between those two things, you've got the Day of Atonement. Everybody's getting washed the whole time, and animals are being killed the whole time. God wants them to make the link in their minds between somehow the sacrifices, the killing, sort of washes them. He wants them to make this link. And at the center, really, there's lots of sacrifices, but there are two goats that are particularly important. The blood of one goat cleanses or makes uh, atonement for the most holy place so that God can symbolically dwell there, the center of the, the temple, the tabernacle. So look at verse 15. Aaron the priest shall then slaughter the goat for the sin offering for the people and take its blood behind the curtain and do with it as he did with the bull's blood. He shall sprinkle it on the atonement cover and in front of it. In this way, he will make atonement for the most holy place because of the uncleanness and rebellion of the Israelites, whatever their sins have been. He is to do the same for the tent of meeting, which is among them in the midst of their uncleanness. The other goat, which is the scapegoat, where we get the word scapegoat from, uh, what happens is the priest symbolically lays his hands on the goat and confesses the sins of the people over the goat. Symbolically, the, the sins are transferred onto the goat and then the goat is driven away out of the camp. He bears the sins of the people away. That's what happens. Uh, Look at, uh, pick it up in 20 to 22. Verse 20, when Aaron has finished making atonement for the most holy place, the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall bring forward the live goat. He's to lay both hands on the head of it and confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, all their sins, and put them on the goat's head. He shall send the goat away into the wilderness in the care of someone appointed for the task. The goat will carry on itself all their sins to a remote place and the man shall release it into the wilderness and the result of all this verse 29 this is to be a lasting ordinance for you on the tenth day of the seventh month you must deny yourselves and not do any work whether native born or a foreigner residing among you 
because on this day, atonement will be made for you to cleanse you. Then before the Lord, you will be clean from all your sins. You turn to the New Testament and see how the writers pick this up. And in Hebrews chapter 10, um, actually why not flick up, Hebrews chapter 10, can someone shout out a, a page number? There we go, look at that, look at that, how efficient is our office? 1210 on the screen, uh, page 1210, Hebrews chapter 10 and verses 19 to 22. So the writer of the Hebrews is reflecting on how the death of Jesus fulfills all these Old Testament sacrifices. And with all the, with all the language of, uh, of the Day of Atonement of being unclean and therefore unable to enter the presence of God in our minds, we read this um, as he's talked about the death of Jesus. Therefore, verse 19, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place, not by the blood of a goat, but by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain, that is his body. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. It is right that we feel filthy sometimes, given the way that we think and speak and act. It's just natural. But if we trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, you and I are washed. And we are welcome. And God calls us to his table. It's partly why the central ceremonies of Christianity, of baptism, are washing in the water. And the Lord's Supper, a meal that we share with God. Because we're, at, we're welcome before him now that we are clean. Okay, page 741, Isaiah 53. This is possibly the, the most famous prophecy of the whole Old Testament, and rightly so. It starts in chapter 52, verse 13. And it points just so clearly to the death of Jesus. There's no escaping it. I mean, it sounds like a poetic description of the death of Jesus as you start at Isaiah 52.13 to 53.12. It, it talks of a, a servant of God who's an ordinary looking man and yet is battered beyond recognition. It talks of him being a man of sorrows who, who is familiar with pain. It describes him as going meekly to his death like a lamb to the slaughter. It talks about oppression and injustice coming together to kill him, about him being mocked and ill-treated in spite of him having done no wrong at all. And it even says that he's buried in the tomb of a rich man. He goes down with the rich in his death. It's extraordinary. It is like a poetic description of the death of Jesus. But Isaiah does more than just describe a scene that should ring bells for us or describe a scene that will be a template to enable us to see Jesus' death when it happens. He does more than just describe, he interprets and he explains. He tells us why God's innocent, wise, holy servant should suffer and die. Uh, let's pick it up um, just at verse 4 of chapter 53. So the section really starts at 52.13, see my servant, as he talks to the servant. Uh, but 53.4, as he starts the explanation for why he dies. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. 
Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. You cannot escape the emphasis. Verse 5 to 6, he was punished in our place for our sins. He took our judgment. Uh, Then again, the second half of verse 8. For the transgression of my people, he was punished. Second half of verse 12. He bore the sin of many and made intercession for transgressors. Like the goat on the day of atonement, he bears away the sins of the people. And the result appears in verse 11. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many. He was made guilty in our place and punished so that we might be justified, declared right and acceptable by God. Or in the words of verse 5, his punishment is our peace. And the Apostle Paul, as the New Testament writers all saw, realized that this pointed to the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in Romans 3.24, he says that we are justified declared right freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. See, if Exodus 12 takes us back to the slave market and God uh, setting us free from our sins, and Leviticus 16 takes us to the temple and how uh, Christ is the sacrifice that dies in our place, Isaiah 53 and Romans 3 take us to the law court. And this isn't one of those cases which turns on a couple of scraps of a fragment of DNA evidence. There is just a mountain of evidence to condemn you and me. When you think about it, if we're charged with failing to love God and other people, you could fill this building a hundred times with the evidence for any one of us. And having lived our lives ignoring God, we ought to be declared guilty and condemned and cut off forever. But the judge steps down and the judge takes our place and he takes our place properly so that he is rightly declared guilty for our sins and we are rightly set free and declared righteous, innocent. See, that's why Jesus swept 
blood in the garden of Gethsemane the night before he died because he knew he was going to drink the cup of God's wrath that you and I deserve. It's why everything goes dark while Jesus is hanging on the cross because God's judgment is being funneled down onto this one man at this one moment in history. See, because God is good and just, he couldn't just ignore our sins and say, ah, it's all just, let's just forget it. But because he's loving and kind, he wouldn't just let us pay what we should pay. And instead he took the punishment himself. And that means you and I don't need to you know, hope we catch God on a good day. We don't need to hope we're just behind Hitler when it comes to judgment day so we look better. We don't need to hope that somehow my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds and then I'll, I'll be all right. We can rely on God's justice. We don't even need to, to hope that his mercy outweighs his justice. We can rely on his justice by, God, you punished your son for my sins. You can't punish the same sins twice. If you trust in Jesus, God cannot punish you for the sins he's already punished Jesus. After looking at how the prophecy of Isaiah in chapter 53 points to Jesus, uh, the, uh, the theologian Oswald comments in his commentary, the mystery is no longer how is it possible for sinful humans to have a healthy whole relationship with God. The only mystery is how could God love us like that? There are, uh, on a brilliant cut diamond, which is the, the most popular cut, there are 57 facets. I throw that out there for free. It's just the sort of pub quiz trivia that I like to help you with every now and then. Uh, 57 facets, like uh, Heinz number 57, so you remember it. Uh, the reason it's called a brilliant cut diamond, uh, these are the things you find out when you've had to spend vast amounts of money on something that looks like a bit of broken glass. To, to <laughs> But the it's reason it's called a brilliant cut diamond is because the 57 facets, it's the only way of cutting a diamond where every single facet sheds light on every other one. And so that's why it's the best cut of all. But the Old Testament has more than 57 facets. There are endless facets to the greatest treasure of the universe. And the greatest treasure of the universe is not uh, some sparkling polished gemstone. It's a blood-soaked wooden cross. And I have never, ever met a Christian who is exhausted what the Bible has to say about the cross. I've met theologians so brilliant that they can pretty much recall every page of books they've read. So when you were writing essays for them, (laughs) they would remember if you failed to put something in quote marks. And yet I've never met anybody, no matter how old, no matter how bright as a Christian, who said, you know what, I think I've found everything there is to find out about the cross try and prove me wrong you'll have a wonderful life doing so as you dig through the bible looking at what it says about jesus death see um i was a, i remember at school we used to get inoculations uh, at the beginning of the autumn term it was great fun because my name was at the start of the alphabet and there were some kids just after me who were terrified of uh, jabs so you'd go behind the screen they'd have the whole boarding house lined up and and you oh <laughs> and you'd sort of limp out and and <laughs> And stagger, and these and people were genuinely faint who were afraid of inoculations. 
But generally, it was a flu jab. Uh, and we used to have to have inoculation against the most virulent, dangerous form of flu there is, uh, man flu, uh, being a boys' boarding school. <laughs> But once I had to have a very serious inoculation. We had a, a missionary friend come to visit for lunch. And the next day, um, he was taken into hospital and they realized he had a very serious, ugly, tropical disease. The sort of thing that kills people. And so we were whisked in and had to have the sort of inoculation where if you don't get it and you've got the disease, you die. The cross is like that, but it's not only like that. You see, you need more than inoculations to live. Inoculations are great for stopping diseases, but you drop dead if you don't keep eating as well. You need to be protected from disease, but you also need to be nourished daily. And you see, the cross is like both. The cross is both the inoculation against God's judgment that you have once. You put your trust in Jesus and you are safe forever. Because Jesus has paid for your sin. But it is also the daily bread that we need to come to each day for nourishment. That's why, to remember it, God gave us a meal, bread to eat daily. And you and I need to live at the foot of the cross if we want to be healthy, joyful Christians. We need to meditate, to reflect on the cross if we're to find the compassion and the love and the grace that we want and we need to live in healthy relationships and to reflect the Lord Jesus. The cross is where we find the power to live as people who are free and forgiven and loved and owned by God. And it's only at the cross that we find that power. You and I have the power to love differently, to live differently every day of every week because of the cross. You and I have the power to live radical lives because of what we've been set free from at the cross. So come to the cross daily. Come to the cross regularly. Allow the Holy Spirit to shape your mind and your heart in the image of the Son of God who died and gave himself for you. If we do so, we will be people who are marked by praise and gratitude and love and hope and worship. Because at the cross, we find love so amazing Love so divine that it demands my soul, my life, my all. We're going to confess our sins as we, as we close. But there'll just be a, a minute of quiet for us to think. It's a sober thing to confess our sins. But how wonderful... That whatever your sins make you feel like right now, whether it's guilty, whether it's shameful, whether it's totally unwelcome and incapable of being anywhere near God, the cross has the answer. And in Jesus we find all that we need. So let's just have a a minute's quiet and then we'll confess together. Heavenly Father, 
We praise you for adopting us as your children and making us heirs of eternal life in your Son, Jesus Christ, who has freed us from our sins by his blood. Yet we still fail to love you with all our heart or serve you as we ought. Pardon our offenses, we pray, and make us clean, that we may enjoy the blessings of being in Christ, in whom alone is salvation. Amen.